This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. We're going to continue to do that. Now, we've just put forward uh, a list, and we're consulting with Canadians on that. We're hearing a lot of feedback around concerns that uh, hunters uh, are saying about guns that they use more for hunting or uh, hunting rifles or shotguns. Uh, And that's what we're listening to feedback on now to make sure that we're not capturing uh, weapons that are uh, primarily hunting weapons. Well, that was the Prime Minister today getting closer to acknowledging what many critics of C-21 have pointed out, that some last-minute amendments to the legislation have vastly expanded the scope of the bill and now include many popular hunting rifles, a bill that is ostensibly about banning so-called assault-style weapons. The government has insisted now for weeks that they are not banning any hunting rifles, despite the apparent evidence to the contrary. And so people are starting to notice. And this issue, which has been, I think, a political strength for the liberals, is turning into something very different. So how did they back themselves into a corner? How did they allow this to become such a mess? Great explainer up at The Line, theline.substack.com on all of this. Joining us to talk more about it is the author of that piece, uh, Matt Gurney. He's a columnist and co-founder at The Line. Joins us on The Line here this afternoon. Matt, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Hey, good to be here. You know how much I love attempting to explain the highly technical Canadian firearms regime in a couple of minutes. Yeah, always a fun challenge. No kidding. I mean, there's the technicalities of it all. There's the politics of it all. And, and, you know, the intersection of the two. Let me just ask you, because I I know what happened after you you wrote your piece. Uh, Carey Price, of course, Montreal Canadiens, goaltender beloved across the country, Indigenous heritage. Uh, He comes out uh, over the weekend uh, on social media and you know, speaks about his opposition to C-21 and, you know, the importance of hunting to him and his family and his culture. How big a deal is this, you think, first of all? It's actually really interesting, and I don't know, and let me tell you why I don't know. Tomorrow, Tuesday, is the anniversary of uh, the Lacole Polytechnique Massacre. Yeah. And this has always been the day where uh, Canadians, uh, particularly those, I mean, all Canadians mourn, but particularly Mm -hmm. those who are passionately engaged with gun control issues, this is sort of the uh, peak of their advocacy season. I don't mean to sound cynical when I say this, but there will always be memorials and press events and and so on and so forth. Kerry Price and his comment is coming out at a really interesting time because one of the large gun rights advocacy groups in this country recently, I think, made a really stupid, unforced error, and they had a promotional code for a sale, and the promotional code was poly. And they have said that they were uh, referring to the advocacy group, and the gun rights guys and the gun control guys are always tweeting at each other. It's, It's always, I thought of like kind of, bitter, juvenile social media stuff. Mm -hmm. And the gun control group says we weren't making light of the massacre. We were just trying to tweak the noses of these guys we're always tweeting with. And to be honest with you, I actually accept that. That makes sense to me, not because it's smart, but because it's dumb. And that's exactly the sort of dumb thing that people do online. 
so we have that story unfolding where people are furious at the uh, the advocacy group for for gun owners and we also have the Carrie Price story happening. And, Rob, the reason I'm equivocating on answering your question, I'm not trying to avoid it, but I've been watching these two stories unfolding in parallel, and I think right now they're kind of just canceling each other out. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, the connection is that in his social media post, you know, Gary Price said, I believe he linked to or he referenced this this group you're talking about. So there's there's the connection between those two stories. Yeah, no, he did. And Carrie Price's point was basically, and we can we can get into the meat of the uh, proposed legislation, but basically he says, I use some of the firearms that are directly going to be implicated by this bill. Right. I'm a hunter. As you've already mentioned, he's Indigenous Canadian, um, and many of the firearms that would be uh, impacted by this legislation are used by Indigenous Canadians for hunting uh, on or off the reserve. And this is sort of a political front I don't think the Liberals were expecting. Normally, they've been able to go, yeah, well, we'll crack down a little bit more on handguns and what, like 200,000 target shooters will complain this time, it's potentially millions of Indigenous people, and I don't think the Liberals were expecting that kind of a fight. And if Carey Price wants to elevate that, I don't think that's good for the Liberals. That's where there's some confusion around all of this. I think for Canadians trying to follow all of this, and for political observers, too, because all along we've sort of sensed that this stuff is good politics for the Liberals. Talking about banning assault weapons, even if the term kind of lacks meaning, plays well. Yet, it appears as though the Liberals uh, have maybe been uh, too clever for their own good and managed to back themselves into a corner here. How did this go off the rails for the government? So that's a great question. And I quote in the piece we just published at the, uh, at the line over the weekend, a uh, conservative friend of mine who was part of the uh, conservative election campaign in 2021, which is, a conserv- which is an election campaign that conservatives do not remember fondly. Right. And he had said kind of ruefully after the campaign, as he was licking his political wounds, he said, oh, man, one day the liberals are going to overplay their hand on guns. They're going to they're going to get too high on their own supply. They're going to read too many of their own press clippings and they're going to do something stupid on guns and it's going to backfire on them. And I think this might have been it. You, know, you, you all know the old saying, man, you, can, you take too many trips to the well and it'll run dry. The liberals have gone back to guns repeatedly in recent years, always layering on incrementally more restrictions a few of which probably actually made sense, most of which didn't. But it was to keep those core urban and suburban voters. And to be blunt about this, I've looked at the polling, particularly women voters, which are kind of the, re- the only remaining reliable voting block for Mr. Trudeau. This has been a really good issue with them. But every time it hasn't been as good. They, you do eventually max out the possible benefit here. And, you know, there is no, no such thing as a free lunch in politics, right? Just basic physics. Every yeah. action has an opposite reaction here. There's always blowback. And I think what has happened this time is that the liberals thought they could get cute. They could do one more push on guns. And they found out only after they did it that not only is it not working for them, but that the anger they've generated exceeds any possible benefit here. What they have proposed, and they're doing it in a really shady way, is, you know, they had originally proposed a legislation about handguns and what they call assault-style rifles. You and I have talked a lot about before. That's a completely bogus made-up term, but that's the term they've been using. 
They proposed some legislation. The NDP and the bloc said they would support it. And they put that legislation into the House. And it looked exactly like what we had been led to believe. It would freeze the sale and importation of handguns. And it would crack down and prohibit a couple dozen different uh, types of rifles. And then after it already went through all of the consultation and the first reading and the first round of parliamentary debate, they snuck in hundreds of pages of so-called amendments that completely changed the scope of the bill, radically expanded the impact of this bill. And that is when everybody, including some indigenous leaders, began to get very upset about this. But we're also hearing rumbles that the NDP's rural caucus isn't happy. The block is apparently under pressure from their own hunters. Uh, a lot of hunters in Quebec. This has gone so far beyond any defensible definition of assault-style weapons or handguns. And I honestly, Rob, I'm being totally honest with you here. I don't know if the liberals tried to pull a fast one on us or genuinely didn't understand the terminology here to appreciate what they were doing. But it's one or the other here because these guys are shameless marketers. They Mm -hmm. always talk up whatever they're doing and they barely mention this. Is it because they're trying to hide it or because they honestly didn't know the file well enough to know how massive what they were proposing is? Which brings us to an important point in all of this, because I think the, you know, the accusation of lying gets thrown around in a lot in politics. I, I'm of the opinion we should be very careful when making that kind of an accusation. So here we are, Matt, where, where the liberals are saying basically with a straight face that, that this bill does not ban hunting rifles. Are, are they lying? Yep, 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 yep. 100 percent. Full stop. They're mm-hmm. lying. The only question I have and I don't know if this makes them better or worse, is whether they realize they're lying. I guess it is hypothetically possible that some kind of internal communication screw-up has occurred and the liberals' left hand does not know what the further left hand is doing. But what is in these amendments, what has been proposed, will have the effect of banning hundreds of kinds of rifles and some shotguns as well. Yeah that are 100% used for hunting under the laws as they exist today. These are weapons that are 100% allowed to be used for hunting and in many cases are used for hunting. We've seen the liberals evolve their language a little bit. They've moved away from we're not doing it to it's not the purpose of the legislation, which I thought was cute. Mm -hmm. But whatever the purpose of it is, don't tell me about the purpose. Tell me about the effect. If this goes through as proposed... Probably millions of individual firearms will be banned in this country, representing many, many, many different hundreds of types of firearm. Probably, I'd have to look at the list in detail. I haven't had the chance to look through all the many, many hundreds of guns on the list. But I would say the majority of which are absolutely used for hunting in this country, or at least legally able to be used for hunting I don't know if the liberals know that they're lying to Canadians when they deny this, but they definitely are lying to Canadians when they deny this. They're not being honest. Right. And so that's a potential problem here. I think even people who might be sympathetic to the government's uh, at least overarching agenda of some some tighter gun restrictions could have a problem with this. The idea that we're now including hunting rifles, I don't think that was part of the bargain originally. So what are the options here for the government at this point? One, I guess, is to just keep gaslighting everybody, press ahead, and hope they get away with it. But otherwise, what are their choices here? 
I heard from one conservative friend of mine today who basically said, I don't know if you've read it yet, but even the CBC is reporting critically on this. And the liberals will know if they've lost the CBC, they've lost and they're going to pull this amendment. He goes, I don't know how they do that. His guess was that they wait a couple of weeks until nearer to Christmas. They let the Cole Polytechnique anniversary pass. They don't want to rock that boat. So that passes. They wait a couple of weeks. Two weeks from now, everybody's on holiday. We're all at home. We're carving turkeys. Everybody's in a good mood. And they quietly withdraw the amendment. Another possibility is they prorogue parliament and let the bill die. So they do have some ways to back off of this. But politically speaking, I think the damage is done. I mean, the liberals here have shown their whole hand. They have denied for years that they would ever ban hunting rifles. They've always tried to pretend that this was keeping Canadians safe from assault rifles. The list of proposed banned guns is public. Anyone who knows this file can find it and read it and see for themselves. I don't think you put that toothpaste back in the tube here. So if the liberals do find a way to back off, that will buy them some time. Tactically, that's the smart thing to do. Retreat from here, live to fight another day. Don't worry about it. Figure it out later. But in the long-term political effect here, I think the liberals, I think my conservative friend is right, basically. I think they took too many trips to the well. And here's the thing, Rob. Up until now, guns have been great politics for the liberals. Mm -hmm. They're now bad politics for the liberals. They're causing more problems than they're causing solutions here. If you're the liberals, what the hell do you do next? Yes, we'll find out in due course. Your piece, as mentioned, uh, it's up at the line. It's theline.substack.com. Matt, thanks so much for joining us here today. I always appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Have a great day. You too. There you go. Matt Gurney, columnist, co-founder at The Line, theline.substack.com. So what do you make of his point here in terms of uh, the mess that the liberals have created for themselves here, that they overplayed their hands on an issue they felt worked well for them? Now, instead, uh, they're getting some pushback from some unlikely sources here. But yeah, I mean, look, any government deserves that. If you're going to make changes to a piece of legislation and then lie about what those changes entail, you deserve all of that flack coming your way. Go back. Uh, look, inflation hasn't gone away. And as such, the Bank of Canada hasn't uh, thrown in the towel on its uh, fight against inflation. The Bank of Canada has a pretty clear mandate. And when it comes to uh, inflation targets, the Bank of Canada is intent on fulfilling that mandate. So already this year, we've seen the central bank increase interest rates and they are not done. Almost certainly on Wednesday of this week, we will see another rate increase from the Bank of Canada. It's unclear how big that's going to be. That may give us some hint of what other steps the bank is considering. Will we see further interest rate hikes into the new year? What are the factors the bank is considering right now? Because this is tricky. It, it takes some time to see the impact of these interest rate hikes. It takes some time to turn things around when it comes to the big ship that is inflation. And there is the economic downside. We've heard a lot of talk about a soft landing and how likely that is. Sort of threading that needle between getting inflation under control, but not steering the economy into the ditch. I mean, interest rate hikes do, and by design, you know, suppress economic growth. It, it is meant to drive down the economy, to give supply and demand a chance to, to get into balance. So it is a tricky balancing act for the bank for sure. So joining us for some thoughts on where we're at now, what the bank might be considering as it uh, decides on its rate hike this week and potential rate hikes 
after this week. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Charles St. Arnaud, who is uh, Chief Economist with Alberta Central and Credit Unions uh, of Alberta, former economist at the Bank of Canada. Charles, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Ram. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, your expectation for Wednesday, I think a, a rate hike is almost a guarantee at this point, but what, what, what are you expecting? Yeah, well, from what we've heard from the governor and the deputy governors is that it's guaranteed we're having a rate hike uh, this week. The question is really the magnitude. Are we talking 25 basis points or 50 basis points? I'm leaning towards 50 basis points, but that will be mainly 50 now and we're done. If they do 25, that means that most likely we have another 25 basis point hike at the next meeting in January. Mm-hmm. What's the bank looking at right now? What's what's driving their decisions on all of this? Well, they need to uh, to bring back inflation back, uh, to target, as you explained, and that target is between one and three percent. Headline inflation is close to seven percent right now in Canada. If we remove food and energy, so what we call core inflation, we're closer to five and a half percent. So there's still a lot of inflationary pressure, and inflationary pressures are quite broad. So they need to bring back. Uh, to bring down economic activity and create what we call some plaque to remove some of those price pressures. I mean, obviously, you know, the Bank of Canada is still trying to be careful. Uh, you know, they, they could just raise interest rates, you know, two or three percentage points. I mean, obviously, they're, they're trying to be uh, balanced in how they approach all of this. So what, what are the, the factors that the Bank of Canada is keeping in mind in terms of not going too heavy or too aggressive? Yeah, I think it's twofold. One is we've learned from the experience of the hyperinflation era of the 1970s that you need to be forceful and early with the type of supply shock we've had and the type when inflation increase uh, to be quite high for a while. Otherwise, inflation expectations start to increase and then the fight becomes harder down the road. Inflation gets permanently high and their job gets harder. Right. But then on the flip side, they also don't want to create uh, an economic downturn that would be too big. But at the end of the day, we also have to remember that to lower inflationary expectations, they need to create some slack in the economy, and that will mean higher unemployment. There's no, there's no other way around. Right. So, you know, we've heard the, the term soft landing thrown around and, and the likelihood of, you know, getting inflation under control and avoiding, you know, a serious economic downturn. Is, is that still a possibility at this point, you think? It is still a possibility. Obviously, it's extremely hard. It's a very hard balancing act that the, the Bank of Canada is, is trying to do, especially in an economy right now in Canada where we're one, we're coming out of a period where we had extremely low interest rates for almost more than a decade, yeah. an economy where households and businesses are way more indebted than the past. So we're, way, we're, also, we're more sensitive to those rates increase. Has the Bank of Canada been a little almost befuddled or <laughs> confounded by, you know, the surprising resilience uh, of the economy? We saw some job numbers recently that, that defied economist expectations higher than expected, even some GDP numbers lately that have been a little bit higher than expected. What, what do they make of that, do you think? Well, I think it's, it's trying to look into the detail, trying to find the cause of why Things are looking either rosy or less rosy than they expect. So if we go on GDP, yes, overall growth was stronger, 
but it was because of stronger exports, especially from higher exports of energy and agricultural products, which are probably not going to happen again going into the fourth quarter and, and continue. So and if we look at domestic demand, which is consumer spending, uh, business investment and residential investment, that actually all put all together is contracted in the third quarter. So the domestic economy per se was actually quite weak. Then on the labor market, it's more resilient, but job growth has been has been kind of more meager. But then the question is that because on one side, there's constraint. Those, the firms who would like to hire cannot hire the worker or find the workers to hire so you don't have an increase in employment. And those who could actually find workers are not willing to hire because they don't need those workers because they see the downturn coming. So that's where you need to look at a lot of the details and try to figure out, okay, what is the story here and what does it mean for uh, inflation? And the tricky thing is, is I understand. I mean, you know, it takes a long time for this to turn around, and it does take some time for these interest rates to really work themselves through the economy. So there's some signs or indications that, that might point to, to where things are going. But, you know, the, the risk for the bank here, if they proceed too cautiously and, and have slower, more moderate interest rate hikes, it's going to take lo- longer potentially to get this under control. If they're too aggressive, you know, that can have more serious economic implications, and they might have to reverse course at some point. Do you get the sense that they're more concerned one way or the other when it comes to, to missing the mark? I feel like they're probably more concerned by uh, not doing too, uh, not or doing not enough and being stuck with inflation and having to start to increase more and, and having those inflation expectations continuing to increase. So far, it feels like businesses and households are in Canada are understanding what the Bank of Canada is doing and have not started to embed that high inflation or thinking that, oh, high inflation is there to stay. So, and I think that's in some ways being aggressive early. <clears throat> I've helped them a lot on that point. Have you personally, I mean, have you seen any signs that suggest we're, we're starting to turn a corner when it comes to, to inflation? They are actually some positive signs in the inflation number. I think we're seeing, again, tentative signs. Is they're just a most recent report. We're starting to see uh, some of those uh, those inflationary pressure to start to probably peak and maybe starting to ease. Um, there'll be also some very powerful effects if we think about uh, gasoline prices, which has been a big contributor early last year. That actually become starts to be uh, to hold back inflation going into uh, early next year because we have to remember inflation is the change in price compared to the same period last year. All right. Well, in, in, in March last year, oil was $120 a barrel or so. Well, we're, we're running uh, closer to uh, $80 a barrel. So with that, gasoline prices might start to be a bit more of a drag on inflation starting in uh, February, March, which will, again, bring inflation down a bit faster. Well, but you raise an interesting point, and maybe we as consumers shouldn't get our hopes too high because if prices stay where they're at... Uh, and, and prices are, are certainly high and for a lot of things that if prices stay where they're at for another year, you know, inflation next December would then theoretically be in the neighborhood of zero. But it doesn't mean the prices have gone down. It's it's the year over year increase or, or lack thereof, I guess, right in the consumer price index. Yeah, you're rising exactly one of the biggest uh, thing with, with inflation is that if prices are constant, inflation is zero. But does it mean that consumers will have gained back 
the purchasing power that they've lost over the past year because wages have not uh, increased at the same pace uh, as inflation. Does that mean deflation is good? Sometimes generally deflation is something we, we panic about. Well, small period might not be bad. The problem is that when it gets ingrained and again, part of the expectations, because uh, at some point, inflation is often a, a, a lubricant to the uh, economic motor. So it's a little bit is, is good, not at all, might not be great. Well, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Obviously, we got a ways to go, but we'll see what happens on Wednesday. That's the, the next announcement from the Bank of Canada. Charles, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. All the best. Appreciate it. Uh, that's uh, Charles St. Arnaud, as mentioned, a former economist at the Bank of Canada, now chief economist at uh, Alberta Central and Credit Unions of Alberta. So some insight on kind of the decision-making process here and everything the bank's trying to factor in. Doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get it right or always get it right, but uh, they're very much driven by that inflation mandate. So Wednesday, expecting that uh, rate hike, a lot of disagreement at this point, I guess, in terms of is it going to be 25 basis points, 50? We'll find out for sure in a couple days. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.